So Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Ryan, thanks so much for reading the passage first. Um, some of you might know Rachel, who used to be working here as a part-time women's worker. And sometime last year, she, her nan passed away. 
So she went back to Ireland for her wake, and she came back saying that she found lots of comfort, that her nan was a Christian, and there is life beyond death. I clearly remembering, I think to myself at that point of time, well, how can you be sure that there's life after death? Can you really be certain that there's life beyond death? You might say it's seemingly it's an impossible question. I mean, I dare to say none of us has first-hand experience. Can we really be certain? I guess whatever belief system you have uh, is a question that we need to think about. An atheist believes and hopes that there is nothing after death. You cease to exist. There are no consequences about how you live your life today. And that has a real appeal for many. Uh, no consequences for how you live today. How can you be sure? I guess then the agnostic would say um, that's the real appeal of being an agnostic, that you can't be sure. But again, even though it sounds appealing, it doesn't make it true. How can you be sure? For the Christian, I guess we might say that there's resurrection life. But again, on what basis are you sure? And my encouragement to you is, is that it's good to think about it before it happens. Uh, imagine that you know someone close to you on his or her last legs. What happens after death? Or imagine yourself on your deathbed. What happens after death? Well, part of the answer, obviously, is Good Friday and Easter, uh, what we will celebrate soon, celebrating the historical event of the death and resurrection of Jesus. A man who was publicly witnessed to have died, but also publicly witnessed to have risen by 500 witnesses. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. But the other half of the answer is, well, what about me? Uh, what gives me certainty that I will rise from the dead? And the author that our answer gives us, uh, the answer gives the, the answer that our author gives us today is perhaps a bit surprising. Uh, the answer that he gives is the priestly order of Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek, uh, what a strange name, you might say, someone who is mysterious or enigmatic, uh, this strange character. Uh, his name has popped up a few times in the book of Hebrews once in chapter 5 and once in chapter 6, and then we've glossed over his name. Uh, but I think someone asked the question, I think it was Sheridan who asked the question, what about this man, Melchizedek? And so today we take a deep dive to understand this character. And I think the surprise that we will see is that his priestly order will help to give you certainty that there's life after death. So if you're following the handout, we're on point number one. And uh, that is the priestly order of Melchizedek. The thing to know about this mysterious figure is that he comes up twice in the Old Testament, only twice in the whole of the Old Testament, one in Genesis 14 and the other in Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, as we've been seeing, is the key Old Testament text for the book of Hebrews, arguably for the whole New Testament as well. Uh, well, most of us perhaps have never heard of Melchizedek before, but that's okay. And I don't think the origin readers really heard of this character before. And so our author, he gives us a really quick introduction of who he is. So go to your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings 
and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. He's without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days, nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Well, the author is recounting the episode in Genesis 14. What's happening there, there's a great ancient superpower battle, the Eastern and the Western kings, of which Abraham's involved, and Abraham helps to win the battle. And Melchizedek, after the battle, blesses Abraham. Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. So Melchi in in the Hebrew means king. Zedek in Hebrew means righteous. Uh, He's the king of righteousness. But he's also the king of Salem or Jerusalem. Salem, it means peace. But Salem is also the location of Jerusalem. He's the king of Jerusalem. And do you notice as well, the, the author describes him as someone who lives forever. Verse 3, he's without father or mother, having neither beginning of days or end of life. I think it's worth clarifying here that I don't think the author literally means that he is living forever as if there's a strange figure walking around this earth today. So not literally, but literarily. That is in the narrative, the way he's described in Genesis is as if he lives forever. He has no mother or father in in the story in Genesis. Um, It is as if he lives forever. But also notice, lastly, verse, verse one, he's a priest. He's the priest of the most high God. He is the first of the Melchizedekan priestly order. And at this stage, you might say, wow, that sounds all that balmy. See, I thought we were talking about serious things, death and life after death, not about Harry Potter or a Lord of the Rings spinoff. I mean, what does this mysterious figure have to do with us? Why does the author speak about Melchizedek? Well, I think the trouble of this passage is that when we read it, we often feel that the author is telling us really niche information um, and describing some obscure figure that only interests the Bible nerds. And I don't think that the origin readers were particularly nerdy. Uh, So why? Uh, Why does the author tell us about Melchizedek? Here's my suggestion. Well, yes, Hebrews is all about the person of Jesus. But more than that, I think what the author wants to do is he wants us to widen the lens, to expand the context in which we can understand the person of Jesus. So let's take his lead. Let's take a step back and let's consider the wider context. And that is to suggest, uh, where does death come from? And why do priests exist? Uh, Where does death come from? Maybe it's a question that we don't often think about. Uh, We accept it as a fact of life. But it doesn't explain why. Uh, why death exists. Uh, So where does death come from? Well, if you're here in our Genesis overview in in January, you know that death is an issue of proximity, an issue of proximity, how close you are to the altar of life. Uh, God is life. He's a source of life. He's a creator of life. So the closer you are to him, there's life. But if you're cast out away from him, you have death. And so death is in this world because humanity has been cast away, cast out of God's presence for rejecting the altar of life. 
that is the origins of death. But that is also where the priests and the law come in. You see, we've been cast out away from God's presence, but the priests, through the instruction of the law, enables people to come close to God. They represent people to draw near to God through sacrifices. Again, priest is a word that we find a bit strange, but I think conceptually we understand what a priest does. Firstly, the priest is an expert. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago. If you need legal expertise, you go to the legal team. If you need credit expertise, you go to the credit team. If you need expertise to draw near to God, you go to a priest. But the priest is not only the expert, he's also a representative. Again, we understand this concept of representative. Imagine you have a big strategy meeting with your CEO, like you have the head of sales, the head of risk, the head of finance, etc. They're all representing their team. What is the offering? Uh, is this presentation deck that the slight monkeys have been slaving away for the past few nights. And so the priests, they are like your heads of departments, are there to represent the team to draw close to God. So that's death, cast out of God's presence, but life is accomplished as the priest enables the people through the law to draw near to God. But here's the issue in the, the Old Testament. There are two priesthoods. Uh, you have the Levitical priesthood and also the Melchizedek priesthood. Uh, which one is it? And that's what our author answers in this chapter. Because it's the priestly order of Melchizedek that secondly, it sets aside the Levitical priesthood. I look down to verse 18 in our passage. Verse 18. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The former commandment there refers to the Mosaic commandment along with the Levitical priesthood. It is superseded by a better hope that is the Melchizedekan priesthood. Why is that the case? Well, the author gives us a few reasons. I look down to verse 11, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The word perfection has come up before, and I wonder whether we tend to misunderstand this word perfection. I think the first thing that comes to our mind is this concept of moral perfection. And so we think that the Levitical priesthood was unable to help people to achieve moral perfection. That's somewhat true, but perfection has a much fuller meaning than just moral perfection. And the word perfection also means complete or to bring things to its end or its fulfillment. And so what the author is saying here that the Levitical priesthood did not attain perfection, that is to say, he was never able to completely bring people close to God. See the priest, they kept dying. A few years, you might have a really good priest able to represent you to God. But the next year, when the priest dies, you have a bad priest causing people to stumble. It lacked perfection. It couldn't accomplish what it set out to achieve. The next, the Melchizedekan priesthood, it does achieve perfection. 
look down to verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, descent, but by the power of indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, this new priesthood is perfect because the priest is forever. Uh, this new priest has the power of indestructible life. The old priest, they kept dying, no perfection, unable to represent the people completely. But this new priest with indestructible life gives you a better hope to draw near to God. But thirdly and finally, uh, this new priesthood is backed by an oath. Look to verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. For those of us who understand the concept of credit risk, um, it's the ability for the company to meet its financial obligations. And often you can have certainty about a company's credit worthiness if it's backed by a larger parent company, one with large financial resources. In the same way, you can be certain of the Melchizedekian priesthood because it's backed by a large parent, uh, the father, uh, with an oath, an oath that he swears on himself. Uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So what have we seen? Uh, three reasons why the, the, the Melchizedek priesthood is superior. Firstly, the old priesthood unable to achieve perfection. The new priesthood, perfection because of indestructible life. And lastly, because it is backed by an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So the Melchizedekian priesthood, a bit mysterious, such a strange kind of term for 21st century years, though weird, but it is better. It is more secure and it can help people to draw near to God. But lastly and thirdly, it's an obvious point by now, it is Jesus who is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And so the right way to think about history is, um, is not about World War II or about the discovery of electricity or about the Norman conquests of England. Uh, is the right way to think about it is that history is split into two. Uh, there are two covenants, there are two laws, two priesthoods. And so when Jesus, he stepped out of the grave on Easter Sunday into indestructible life, he concludes one story and he begins another. Verse 18. For on one hand, a foreman commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and useless. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, Jesus, he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
a better hope for us to draw near to God. And so that is why I think our author is telling us all about this mysterious figure. You see, I mentioned before that um, on first reading this passage, it feels like really quirky information uh, that the author is saying to, I guess, Bible nerds. But I think the author here is doing something far more profound. He's expanding the claim of Easter. He is setting the death and resurrection of Jesus in a much bigger context. You see, the good news of Easter that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord is not only historical, verifiable, that there were 500 witnesses. It is more than that. There is a whole history behind it. God's promise to Abraham, the nation of Israel, the Levitical priesthood, the prophecy of another priest to come, and all of his fulfillment lands on Jesus as he steps out of the grave into indestructible life. And so you can be certain, absolutely certain about the events of Easter, not just because there are witnesses, and there was, but also because there's a whole tapestry of history behind it. And so that's why you can be sure, 100% sure of life after death. And even when you stare at the loss of someone you love or stare death in the face, you can be sure. Because on Easter day, Jesus, he rose from the dead into indestructible life. But crucially, he didn't just rise as a man. He rose as a high priest, as your representative. And he didn't do it only for himself, but also for us. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you notice he always lives to or in order that, or for the purpose of making intercession for us. He enables us to draw near to God, the source of life. And so Rachel will see her nan again, because Jesus always lives as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek to intercede for her. And so this certainty is available for all who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, he is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that brings us into the holy place, to the right hand of God, our representative who always lives to intercede for us. And so I think the burden of proof is on the atheist or the agnostic. How can you be sure that there is no life after death? You have no personal experience of dying to know. You have no evidence that there is no future after death. There's only a hope that there will be no future accountability, a hope that there will be no judgment day where you will not be called into account. How can you be sure that there's no life after death? But for the Christian, the converse is true. Uh, you can be sure because there was a man called Jesus. He died publicly. He rose publicly to 500 witnesses. He rose to indestructible life in accordance with a whole tapestry of history. He rose as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he always lives, even today, to intercede for you. Well, my prayer for this Easter is that we will be absolutely certain that we can draw near to God 
And even as we stare death in the face, you can have, cert be, have certainty uh, that to have life after death. A verse as we close. For the Lord appoints men and their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of both, which come later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.